So thank you all for coming to Cock Talk. He has trouble counting change with the with the with the hands thing. Wait, wait, stop. Sorry. Yes, but I don't yeah. think that Dana Carvey's movie um, coming out at that same time was really that big a problem for our country. I still don't know why you're making such a big deal about September 11th, 2001. I mean, I fucking hate you. Well, you know, they don't necessarily need to be anathema, but they are definitely on different ends of the spectrum. Oh boy, how? See, I have every, a genetic predisposition every, against redheads, so because yeah, because you are one, right? Yeah, combustion. Yeah, we've yeah. heard it before. Yep. The only time I change the setting so, is when so, I take the okay. uh, hair trimmer down to the nether regions. Like that's the only time. Other than that, it's all just a two. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I just don't How about you all? I'm joking. I use beat. After the four Gospels, what's the next book of the Bible? Acts. Okay. And after that, it's Romans, isn't it? I'm drunk. Um, yeah, Romans. Okay, yeah. Yes. Okay. And if you look at the 15th chapter of Romans, okay, uh, you will find that it actually mentions uh, the ability to arm yourself. That's why it's AR-15. Thank you. Checkmate atheists. And, and anytime there's action in the ring, Scott Hall is taking all the bumps because Kevin Nash kind of sucks as a worker. teacher here in Northern California with a side order of English. And uh, my personal news uh, is that earlier today, um, my wife and I had to deal with our first uh, wet bed uh, by my son. He oh, uh, okay. went down. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, and it's not the first for me by <laughs> a long shot. That's like, you know, <laughs> Saturday night, you know, too many too many beers but oh um, see i thought you were just bragging yeah. about it. yeah okay All oh right. well there's a reason yeah, we uh, got the explicit rating so yeah <laughs> like wow he's yeah, really no, putting that to no, use no, this time that's, that's awesome that's a, go no, ahead we, we we know enough to put towels down that's no come on well done uh i'm just know. glad you figured out how to use the electric uh toothbrush that's good yeah well you know i mean yeah who hasn't but uh so anyway he uh he went down for his nap mm-hmm and uh stayed down for his nap for a while uh which was a little surprising because he didn't do much in the morning and then uh when when he woke up he he came into uh, the bedroom where my wife and i were were working on on getting stuff done on the house sure and uh he he came in and uh, because of the way all of our furniture was moved around i couldn't see him at first and uh, he came in and, and he was he was crying and mm. he said oh baby you have an accident and i you know the first thing i thought was like did he you know start his thumb. toe yeah. do something you know and then I, I come around yeah I, yeah I come around the corner and and his shorts are a darker shade of blue 
did they did it go up the belly too? So he had like it looks like somebody took a circle stamp and just hit him with it. No. Okay. No, in this case it it went for whatever reason it, it went downward. Okay. Um, it always traveled up like past the navel for me and oh, down wow. to the thighs. And oh I, wow. Okay. Yeah, senior year of high school was awful. It was yeah, no, that it suck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, my first year in the dorm, it was humiliating. <laughs> um, but yeah. So anyway, uh, and you know, and and my wife handled it like a champ. She said, Baby, sure. that's okay. You know, accidents yeah. happen, it's all right, let's go clean you up, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was basically it. So, uh, yeah, but it, it's, it's a little bit of a milestone because for the longest time before he went down for a nap, we'd put a pull up on him. Oh, okay. And uh, so he has been without a pull up at nap time for a while. And, and this is the first time that we've had that happen. So anyway, you know, okay. parenting, parenting level up uh, occurred. Uh, earlier today so that's that's my news uh which you know if if you're not a parent you're like oh my god why are you telling people about that but if you are but but if you are a parent you're like oh yeah i know i'm in there i totally know that one (laughs) you know so yeah so that's me okay how about you who are you and what's going on i'm damien harmony i am a latin and drama and history teacher at the high school level up here in northern california uh, all around union thug, that kind of stuff. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have anything as uh milestoney as, mm-hmm. as you do, but I, I will say this, uh, we, um, we do reading assignments in my, in my, in my house. Cause my mm-hmm. kids are both, you know, double digits at least. And so I always say the first two books I choose. And then after that you choose, I don't care what it is, but it's, you know, make it something you enjoy because we're going to read for an hour a day every day. Yeah. And so they got to choose from different comics, um, essentially graphic novels. So my son never finished March last year. So this year he's uh, starting with March and it's a three volume. Um, And then uh, he's, uh, so he's doing that one. My daughter read The Jungle, the uh, the adaptation oh, yeah. Yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. And so she and I have been talking about Jurgis all day long today. So it's been pretty cool. Okay. And she's like, really, like, she's like, it's it's awful that they're competing for 14 cents an hour and that that's considered good and and on. And, you know, and she's like, really getting into it. I'm like, it's only it's it's as if the workers need to band together. And that's their only chance. She's like, hmm, I wonder why you think that to work together. Yes. Or, you know, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's cool. And I told her straight up, I'm like, I am trying to radicalize you. Like there, there's <laughs> there is there's no there is hidden no... agenda. The agenda is on <laughs> the, the agenda. refrigerator. <laughs> the agenda is pen. overt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so but uh you know, item okay, one, so hit the grocery store, item two, laundry, <laughs> item three, overthrow capitalism. Right. Item four, uh cake. Um yeah. <laughs> so I I will tell you this though. Um, your story of your son wetting the yeah. bed. Um, anybody who doesn't want to hear this, fast forward by about three minutes. So okay, starting now. Okay. Okay, so now that they're gone, I yeah. was a sleepwalker uh through essentially the time that I got adopted by my dad. Um, that's about eight years old. Um, and I was a sleepwalker uh for about that year uh actually for a couple years come to think of it and i would sleep sleepwalk to pee and it was fine when i sleepwalked to the shower and peed into the shower it was fine when i would sleepwalk 
to the toilet and and make it there. Mm-hmm. That was rare. Uh, the shower was oh thank God. More often than not, it was on the front door. <laughs> so I just walk up to the front door and let go, and and I would, you know, eight year old me, I'd pull down my you know my drawers and and just shoot a st- straight stream at the door. Um, or my fa- my favorite was when I would open up the cabinets and pee into the cabinets. So never let yeah. it be said. My parents yeah. did not have a pot to piss in, but can you imagine, well, well they may not have had a pot, right? But, but can you imagine you, you made it one? Can you imagine finding said pots the next oh. morning when you're going to make breakfast is oh. a special kind yeah. of hell for my parents. Um, so they got very good at waking up. Well, there was a door that opened to the, this is in San Francisco. Um, there's mm-hmm. like a uh, in-laws quarters down on the bottom floor of the house. Okay. This is a split level house. Um, and uh, those, those stairs were covered in plastic like Laura Palmer. And uh, that, that stairway was right next to my parents' room. <laughs> so um you're still on about the Laura Palmer thing, aren't you? Yeah, I, I really am. Yeah, it's going to be hard to get to get past that one. But continue. So continue. I opened the door still. and yeah. it's right next to my parents' bedroom. And apparently I woke them up by peeing down the stairs and, you know, you know, just like and I guess I had to pee a lot back then. Um, I don't know because I was sleeping, but I do remember being awoken at the top of the stairs and my mom is really mad because, you know, she's been awakened by someone pissing right next to their room mm-hmm. and knowing the amount of work that it takes to clean anything liquid off of stairs, much less your son's urine. And she looks up at me and she's holding a, a paper towel in her hand. She's like, look at this. And I'm barely coming to at this point. Yeah. And what? What? Just just go to bed. So I went to bed. After that, I never sleepwalked again. Really? That's true. I began wetting the bed from that point forward um and that sucked and so there was all kinds of stuff that they they didn't realize that these two things were tied you know keep in mind uh who they were uh, at that time yeah but um more saliently we we did get rubber sheets um which was good um and i learned to take a shower every morning and i learned to do my own laundry uh every morning and i was soaked from navel to thigh oh wow for a good I think until I was about 11. Really? Um, yeah. Well, cause there were a lot of, you know, very often wetting the bed is a sign of stressors and things like oh, that. Yeah. Anxiety, yeah, trauma, anxiety. Yeah. And you know, when your parents are like, you know, in your waking hours saying, well, we're going to have to get the kind of sheets that electric shock you to stop you from doing this, you know, it's like, I, yeah, that, that's, that's a great way to, to, you know, you know and again, I'd been adopted that. and then uh, we moved to Florida and that was an awful culture shock. Like, I cannot intimate to you how <laughs> deeply different the culture was from San Francisco to yeah, Bronson, Florida, yeah. where best friends would start blood feuds at the drop of a hat for the next four years. And that would take care of their entire fifth grade. And then, wow. and then after that four years of fifth grade, they'd go on to sixth grade as friends again. Uh, like it was just such a, it was very stressful time. Yeah. Very cold, And it was yeah. very mean people. They were just very mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that those things absolutely fed into me continuing to wet the bed. That would um, make sense. I eventually stopped. Don't know how, yeah. don't know why. Figured it out. I don't know. Um, but I've always been a morning showerer. Yeah. Uh, as a result. And uh, so, 
you know, the less of a deal you can make of it, the better. So it sounds like mm-hmm. your wife is on the right track. Um, yeah. And and overall, though, it just it, it tickles me still to know that my parents had to deal with <laughs> all of that, all that pee, all in, of that, yeah, in in their in their cabinets, and that one especially, but yeah. also at the front door. For some reason, the front door is funny to me too. Yeah, but that is, that is a little weird. Yeah. So all right. Anyway, um, my daughter actually was a sleepwalker for a while. So like now, even now, uh, like I'm like, all right, go to the bathroom before you go to bed. And she's like, I don't really have to go. I'm like, honey, you sleepwalk when you have to pee. And I I have seen her turn on like when she wakes up Mm -hmm. and just I mean, she's she's come out. I I need to ask her what was the thing that she said, because I think she remembers it better now that more than I. But I think she was really upset or mad that the apples were in the refrigerator. And they mm-hmm. needed to be set free or something. I I don't exactly remember what. Okay. But she's a not. She reads so much that like mm-hmm. just a sentence will connect to another sentence, which yeah. will. Yeah. And when you're sleepwalking, it's just whatever comes to the front. So. Yeah. Yeah. So my daughter's a sleepwalker as well. Oh wow. So yeah, but not not a bedwetter, far as I know. So. <laughs> Anyway, uh, I right. think we should we should probably recap here. Uh, in yeah. 1999, 2002, 2004, and 2005, each year started with TV shows on HBO or Showtime uh, that mm-hmm. followed a dark and gritty, hidden underbelly style, morally ambiguous story and protagonist to boot, all of whom were capable of and had carried out, uh, either directly or by proxy, horrific violence. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, even uh, Nancy Botkin from Weeds, uh, people carried it out on her behalf. Yeah. You know, she's not smashing people's heads through windows or anything like that, but she is engaging in an enterprise that does have that violence and that threat of violence in it. Yeah. But Al Swearingen, straight up. I mean, I'm oh murderer, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I, I actually went and I and I looked at uh, quotes from Al Swearingen. Oh, they're good. Uh, yeah, and, and one of my favorites, and, and I can hear Ian McShane saying it, mm-hmm. and, I, and I can't come anywhere near impersonating him. But you, you know, you talk about him committing violence. Uh, he, uh, one of his quotes was, uh, "Acts of bloodletting on my property that I have not, uh, that I sanctioned, have not personally basically. sanctioned, yeah. uh, uh, turn my stomach. That don't sit right with me." Right. <laughs> I can't. And, and the thing is, okay. each, each one of these characters does, in fact, have their own buggy moral code. Oh, yeah. Blue and orange morality. Yeah. 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 So now in 2007, AMC stepped onto the gritty, underbelly, dark, morally ambiguous protagonist scene with Mad Men. Okay. Matthew mm-hmm. Weiner uh, wrote a draft. Weiner, Weiner wrote a draft for the pilot back in 2000. And then he went to work on The Sopranos under David Chase, uh, who read the pilot uh, in 2002. So David Chase, the showrunner and creator of of, uh, Sopranos, Mm -hmm. looks at this pilot for Mad Men, and he is gaga for it. Now, Wiener wanted Chase to be the uh, executive producer, um, and uh, he wanted HBO to produce it. So once again, you have a pattern starting Mm -hmm. here. Start with HBO. Right. Yeah. Okay. So now, which year mm-hmm. was Mad Men again? Mad Men starts in 2007. That's when okay. it debuts. But, right. uh, it was okay. written in 2000, and this is often yeah. how things happen. Oh yeah. 
Uh, and then, you know, they get specced and all, all kinds of yeah. stuff. But um, so he wants HBO to produce it. He wants Chase to, to executive produce it because he knows that Chase does good work. Chase actually declines. He's like, I got too much on my plate, but I absolutely support this to the hilt. I will go to bat for you. And he does. Uh, now, uh, HBO didn't take it up. So, of yeah. course, following Genji Cohen's path, he takes it to Showtime. But this time they pass on it, too, because... Uh, now Sopranos is in its final season and, uh, you know, uh, Weeds is doing really well on Showtime. Yeah. So, you know, they're like, oh, we don't need another one, um, okay. which is a tremendous lack of foresight. Um, but AMC is like, oh, hey, over here, over here. Hey, because uh, people are going to we know yeah. that Sopranos is on its last season. We know that people are mad that they had to wait almost a year and a half for the last season. Uh, mm. So there's going to be some drop off there. Uh, if it ends up being anticlimactic in some way, then we really want people's anger to like guide them to something else that yeah. is also a period piece of some sort. And so they're okay. hopeful that people would turn over to AMC because they've got the buzz on Mad Men. So they yeah. picked it up. Uh, now, HBO's CEO, oof, too many damn letters. Uh, yeah. <laughs> HBO CEO lamented AMC's picking up of Mad Men. Um this would be AMC's first original series. Prior to that, okay. it was American yeah. Movie yeah, Classics. Yeah. Whole yes. lot of Westerns, a lot of Turner stuff. Well, no, Turner was TCM, Turner Classic yeah. Movies. Um, now, it's 2007. Do you remember what was happening in the insurance world in 2007? Oh, yeah. No, we just talked about this. Uh, yes, AIG was yeah. in the process of going tits up. So why not have a TV series about the total alienation, <clears throat> ruthless, unstable capitalism and a world on the brink of disaster? Okay. Uh, why specifically, not? specifically mm -hmm. focusing, mm -hmm. specifically focusing mm -hmm. on uh, the people who are responsible for driving us all to consume. Yes. And they're and all then... white people in charge of telling lies. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> while at the same yeah. time are lying to themselves and struggling to make any meaning out of their lives that are increasingly dictated by said consumerism. Oh yeah. No, there, there were some, there were some amazing moments in the show mm -hmm. that, uh, that showed the level of, wow, your characters are running so hard in the direction of self-understanding. Yeah. And then, and then, and then, and then they whiffing. just headbutted away whiffing the last yeah. instant. Oh, your character's Charlie Brown. There's, there's self-reflection. <laughs> it's a football. Oh, what oh, does he do? Hey. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. One of, one of my favorite uh, moments from, I want to say it was the first season mm -hmm. is of course, this is, this was set in I'm trying to remember what the first year of the, of the series was. Was it 60? Um, I, to remember I think yes i think it is the 1960s um, well it is it is the very early 60s but right I'm, I'm trying to remember specifically what year because each each season was was very very fixed in time and space they yeah they specifically no it was it was 1960 because it was okay. during the election right of, of 1960 so yeah november of 1960 because you had the the kennedy and nixon yeah. uh thing kind of in the background of in the all. background yeah yeah and and what i was uh First off, the, the very the very first episode. Uh, mm -hmm. At the time, I was I was living with uh, a couple of friends, mm -hmm. uh, my best friend and his wife, and um, 
we watched the first episode together and I was mesmerized. Uh, but just absolutely like I, I could have, if binging had been a thing in 2007, I, I, I totally would have done it like sure. right there. Sure. Uh, and the two of them were completely turned off um, <laughs> because, because the main character was this shiftless, amoral, you know, has a wife that, out in the suburbs and that a, you and don't a really know about city. Yeah. You yeah, don't you know don't. about that. He's a dichotomy until the very end when he goes home. Yeah. Yeah. And you're and, like, and Oh, he's, he's not just oh, a charming prick. He is a philanderer. Like, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And, yeah. and, uh, you know, they, they were both getting, it's funny. They never, they never watched any, any of the, you know, earlier series that we've, that we've referenced, you know, they, they, we, they, they weren't Sopranos fans or anything like that, but it was all floating in the culture. And they were both like, I don't want to watch a show about an asshole. <laughs> Like, no. Yeah, I'm no, I, I, I get that too, because like yeah. I, I, people are like, you should watch Parenthood. I'm like, no, I live it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No. You know, oh, you should watch Boston Legal. No. <laughs> like, I, I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to see venal people in nice suits. Or, yeah. or my other favorite was, uh, you should watch Boston Public. And I'm like, no, no teacher is that hot. And, and I don't want to watch these hot <laughs> teachers having their hot teacher problems. Yeah. No. Show me the episode where yeah. they're fucked up with the with the copier. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Oh, but, dude. Yeah. yeah. So, but um, in in the very first episode, you know, you you find out that number one, there's an awful lot about this guy you don't know, right? Um, and he's this he's this cipher, mm-hmm. which for them was a turnoff. For me, it was like, oh no, see, I'm this, I'm hooked. You <laughs> you you got me. Like I'm ready to watch all of this. Um, but then the, the masterfulness, uh, in the pitch with the cigarette guys, mm-hmm. Paul Mall, uh, where, basically. where, yeah, where they're or lucky where strike. They're, I forget what they're, I think it was, for, it was lucky yeah. strike. Yeah. Yeah. It was lucky strike, uh, where, you know, the, you know, he asked him, so, you know, explain to me, you know, how do you make a cigarette? Because they're, they're trying to come up with an angle, right? Because the surgeon general report is, is now a thing. Right. And, and cancer is this deal. And uh, he immediately latches onto, wait, 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 stop. What do you do to the tobacco? We toast it. And, and, and no, that's, that's, that's the tagline. It's yep. toasted right. because that's comfort. That's, that's home. Mm-hmm. That's warmth, literal warmth. That's all right. these things. And, and, and the tobacco guy is like, well, but yeah, that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't matter that it doesn't mean right. anything. It's right. gonna hit the button we need to hit. And the 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 genius of that complete redirect mm-hmm. was like completely took the took the rug out from under my feet right there. And sure. I was like, okay, no, this this guy's completely amoral, and I want to see him work his hideous magic. Well, and mm. You you hit it on the head there. So mm. each one of these characters that we've been talking about, yeah, we want to watch them work their hideous magic. Whether it's mm. at the point of a shotgun, whether it's with a boot knife, whether it's by ordering fat Italian guys to kill other fat Italian guys, yeah, whether it's uh, selling weed through your kid's school, whether yeah. whether whether it's work your wicked magic. It's we okay. want to see bad people 
doing bad things and keep the veneer of good. And that's a real thing in 2007. It's, it's wild. Okay. So Don Draper himself has mm-hmm. lived a lie for much longer than the series uh, had been going as well. Like oh, if yeah. you look into his backstory a bit, he lied during the Korean War so that he could desert. Yep. And his whole identity was based on that lie. Yep. Um, and so long as he keeps it going, he can outrun it and he can live his success and have his success. But he doesn't have meaning because he is because none of it is really him. right oh be, yeah no yeah. it's it's incredibly like there's there's a level on which he's kind of a uh uh kind of a weeble uh or not a weeble what's the word i'm looking for wooby there's a level on which he's kind of a wooby because in in those moments where he he reflects on his emptiness there is genuine pathos there mm-hmm and then you watch him come and then and he's got something. scotch yeah and then and well like everybody did you know yeah and but that was a central feature so, to it yeah yeah i say that don draper is the housing market and because it's 2007 i mean think about it he is built on lies as long as he can keep ahead of it he's doing fine and everybody else's confidence in him makes it so that he's doing fine and he's absolutely trying to just outlive his lie and doesn't really pay attention to when the bill comes due because he's trying to stay ahead of that bubble now of course being in 2007 a morality play is absolutely out of the question so we yeah. followed this philanderer through his charming sociopathic somewhat deliberately unaware life and I do mean deliberately unaware. He tries oh, yeah. to turn it off. And because oh, yeah. it's 2007 and a war has been going on for four years by this point with no end in sight, America's psyche vis-a-vis its sense of masculinity was wildly damaged by 9-11. And so a TV series that highlights and reaffirms the most surface level, visual only, toxic versions of that lost masculinity is going to be a big hit. Mm-hmm. So the drinking, the smoking, the sexual assault, the uh, the num- <laughs> the casual sexual assault, the oh, numbness yeah. that the women felt through uh, Betty Draper and the awful yeah. hole in his heart entitlement that Don Draper felt and embodied was oh, central boss, to people's boss uh, at, a, at a major party performing in blackface without like realizing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I yes, mean, there's there's also that. But I'm talking about the actual like the the heart wrenching parts that oh, we okay. loop into. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. All of that's awful, too. Yeah. But like that is central to people's interest in the reality of the show. I don't think the boss doing black. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. That, was, that was a yeah. that, that was a hey, you know, look, look what things were like back then. Right. And, you know, and oh, my God, we've come so far. Yeah. And and I think that's like a secondary rub. That's like good liberals comforted themselves watching oh, the yeah. show oh, saying, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, at least yeah. it's not like that anymore. Yeah. Um, and and, you know, they then they would maybe talk to their black friend about that scene. Um, now, once again, we Not have a, a show. Just, what? Just don't just yeah. keep your yap shut. Yeah. Just don't. good advice. Yeah. Um, anyway. Once again, we have a show about the dark underbelly of capitalism. But this time it's a white man's paradise, too. It's back when America was great which after 2009 was quite the juxtaposition with the realities that certain people were trying to deny at that time. Okay. So I'm going to recap. 1999, Mm. 2002, 2004, 2005, 2007, 
all started with shows on HBO or Showtime or AMC that had us following a dark, gritty, hidden underbelly, morally ambiguous story and protagonist, all capable of and having carried out horribly narcissistic lives that were at once tremendous exercises in lying to their loved ones and themselves, as well as carrying out very selfish behaviors. Okay. And that brings me to 2008. 2008, AMC ran yet another original content show, Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. this time by Vince, Vince Gilligan, uh, which is not the love child of the lead singer of Motley Crue <laughs> and Bob Denver. No. No. Good to, good to note that because yes, people would yes. get confused. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Now, originally, the idea came out of an X-Files episode. Vince Gilligan had written an episode called Drive, wherein Brian Cranston's character is an anti-Semitic shitheel who's captured Mulder at gunpoint. However, he's suffering from a real affliction, one that requires Mulder to take him to the West Coast or he'll die. Okay. Um, so, and, and it has to do with radio waves and all kinds of things happening inside okay. his head and, all right. and stuff like that. So the question becomes, literally, how far will you go to save an asshole's life? He's clearly a bad person. So why is Mulder saving his life? And Gilligan loved that juxtaposition. And he specifically wanted Cranston because, quote, we had this villain and we needed the audience to feel bad for him when he died. Brian alone was the only actor who could do that, who could pull off the trick. And it is a trick. I have no idea how he does it. End quote. He also said that the episode wouldn't work unless it had such a talent because, quote, It needed a guy who could be scary and kind of loathsome, but at the same time had a deep resounding humanity, end quote. Okay. Now he kept this idea for this and uh, this actor in his pocket for later when he wrote the pilot to a TV series. He loved the idea of a protagonist turning antagonist and seeing how far he could drive you along the way, which to me feels really abusive. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And we were down for it. We were so fucking down for it. And that's the thing. Like, I remember um, the the Walking Dead, because we did an episode a while back on zombies um, and and how the Walking Dead. And I could have thrown that in here. And there's there's a bit of mention to it. But at one point, the show creator for Walking Dead, or maybe it was a showrunner by that point, when they killed Glenn. Yeah. He straight up said, I wanted to see how far I could push the audience. And it's like, bro, the goal isn't to get us to say the safe word. That's not how that works. Isn't it, though? Are you sure? For this fucker. He's the kind of guy that would make like your safe word has to be four syllables. So you could get one more thrust in while you're trying to say it. Yeah. Like, yeah. God. So but this this is kind of the same vibe, though. Right. Yes, it's it's interesting. It feels very Milgram-y, you know, the Milgram experiment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, it does. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Yeah. So quote, television is historically good at keeping its characters in a self-imposed stasis so that shows can go on for years or even decades. When I realized this, the logical next step was to think, how can I do a show in which the fundamental drive is toward change? End quote. Now that philosophically I'm down for, I think that's cool. Yeah. Um, And yes, I think going from hero to villain absolutely does work in that dynamic. And I think that that's, that, that is fascinating. That is interesting. Yeah. I think there are other changes you could have done, but okay, cool. Yeah. Now we're arguing taste, but I would point out it's 2008 and we're seeing a very clear pattern. Yeah. You know, uh, like again, oh, yeah. 
moral ambiguity at best and then straight up oh we're going to take a good guy and turn him bad guy for you right in front of your eyes yeah and really that's the full explanation of tv in the 2000s isn't it like we had a specifically anti-hero characters in the 1990s stretching into the 2000s you had Mm -hmm. people who were on the side of good doing bad things for the sake of good you i mean it culminates with jack bauer where you can still fool yourself into thinking he's a good guy but you had the guy from the shield you had the commish you had uh, all the cop procedural shit yeah right you had all those those are anti-heroes but those characters didn't really change either yes they had character development don't get me wrong um yeah but but they really did stay shield yeah was was like no straight up from from episode number one mm-hmm. um michael chiklis's character was was a bad guy like he's he's he was you know, wolverine on... yeah, okay. he is at what he does and what he does right, is very does nice, is nice. Yeah, but okay. he is All he's right. working for the right side of things so well we think at the beginning of the series yeah 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 i mean and you know, again yeah. it's the 1990s i'm not gonna yeah, say that you yeah know, i'm yeah. not but, standing yeah. for the nypd um yeah, the lapd lapd the shield oh that's right that's right yeah uh, um so yeah and in the 80s and 90s you had heroic characters i mean very rarely oh, yeah. were they bad guy bad guys in any way you had spencer for hire the closest you came to having him be a bad person was that he had a black friend who rhymed all the time um <laughs> like uh, and so uh, um, Hawk, yeah, the, Avery Brooks, yeah, yes, Avery yeah. Brooks. As a matter of fact, uh, but you uh, also had MacGyver. Yeah, you had Equalizer. You had uh, you had um, Scarecrow and Mrs. King. You had Cackney and Lacey. You had yeah. you had MacGyver. You have yeah. these heroes. Remington Steel. There you go. You've got all these heroes. Yeah, you don't really have. I mean, fuck. Even the A Team, they were clearly good guys. Oh yeah, you know, um, they didn't change either. But but when you had characters who were fundamentally flawed, they could change and we would still go along with them. Starting with Tony Soprano, look at him. Uh, look at look at Omar, look at Al, look at Nancy, look at Don. All of them are people who contain multitudes and people who don't necessarily even see themselves as good. Mm-hmm. So why should we care? We care because we want to see them evolve and change, whether it's for good or ill. We want we to just see, want to see some us. change. Yes. We want to see where they take us because our life is constantly in turmoil and change since okay. 9-11, since okay. a little bit before that even. With Breaking Bad, Vince Gilligan specifically said that he wanted to turn Mr. Chips into Scarface and see if you'd come along. <laughs> that's a great elevator pitch. Yeah. But that's, I mean, he's he is perfect. He has dined out on that phrase so many different interviews. Like it's clearly, you know. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, you know what is it? Uh, we are creating an army of unforeseen power. You know, like from <laughs> Kentucky Fried Movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, he also said that without Tony Soprano, there would be no Walter White. Oh yeah, definitely. He's drawing that straight line. Yeah, and it's this evolutionary soup that I'm most interested in for this podcast. So it's only taken okay. me three episodes to get here. Okay. Um, the early 2000s were a fertile ground for continually pushing the moral ambiguity to the point where we actively were invested in seeing a good man turn truly evil villain succeed. Okay. If you didn't have everything that came before, we would not be on board for Walter White. Okay. Now, 
like most good shows, it was rejected by prior networks who already had something like that going on. Showtime, HBO, TNT, FX, all passed on Breaking Bad. AMC, who already had Mad Men, and by this point, The Walking Dead, said yes, and it was off. Vince Gilligan clearly loved pulling the audience in this direction and at looking at our underlying assumptions about what is good and what is bad. Um, and so to just give you, just in case people haven't seen Breaking Bad, Walter White is our main character. It's Brian Cranston's character. He has cancer. We find this out in the first episode. His teaching job does not pay enough in a society where healthcare isn't free. So he has to die. His teaching job actually doesn't even pay enough to tend to his own son with special needs. So he works mm -hmm. a second job at a car wash where his students sometimes frequent and film him to embarrass him more. So he turns to making meth because yep. he's a chemist. Um, which will pay for his cancer treatments if he does it well enough. And if not, then the money, you know, and, and if and then he can live. If he doesn't live through it, the money from the meth will set up his family after death, especially since his wife learned that she was pregnant right around the same time that Walt learned that his lungs were riddled with cancer. Mm -hmm. And what I love about it is in the very first episode, you're watching his brother-in-law who is a DEA agent talk about the bust. And he, Walt says, how much do, do you think that was worth? And he's like, oh, about, you know, this much million dollars. And he's like, wow, that's a lot. And so he's just planting that seed. Mm -hmm. Now, is meth illegal? Yes. Is making meth illegal? Also, yes. Does his brother-in-law specifically work for the DEA and bust meth labs? Also, yes. Mm. Does his brother-in-law also brew his own beer? Also, yes. Yes. Is that legal? Also, yes. So you're seeing this like accepted morality versus not. And what's the real difference? And where's the line, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And since meth is illegal, look what it leads to. Whereas brewing your own beer, you can make Schrader Brow um, and box it yourself. <laughs> well, Walter's success outstrips his cancer. He beats his cancer. It was stage three and he actually yeah. beats it. And, and they gave him very, very poor prognosis. Yeah, he oh, actually yeah. beats no, it. Yeah. Um, but right as he beats it, his wife discovers a lot of what he's been doing and leaves with both of the children. Cause yeah. by this point, his daughter's been born and he's done some horrid shit at this point alone. Like really I'm trying like, to remember roughly where in his moral degradation mm -hmm. that, that occurred by that, the time that, by the time she leaves him i'm already saying no i'm never following him like he's okay. clearly a villain at that time and i'll tell you why in a minute there's a very specific scene that, okay uh, that that leads to me saying that like it's like at that point like nope sorry you stole the droids i don't know what to tell you <laughs> um <laughs> Now, this is also a regular theme. Right at the moment of triumph, Walt suffers tremendous tragedy. And I'm sure there's a Walt Whitman poem that talks about that, but I don't know from yeah. poetry. So um, now over and over, we, we see Walt making decisions based on his aggrievement at the injustice of his situation. And his situation is not just. It's really not. And every single decision he makes takes him further and further away from the person that we would want to be. At what point is his breaking bad our breaking point? Okay. For many, including myself, it was the moment where he allowed Jesse's girlfriend to drown in her own vomit. Yeah. That was the moment for me because he literally was reaching to stop and then he held his hands back and he just watched her die. 
plenty of people recognized his steps earlier as points of no return. And I don't want to say that they're wrong for that. I totally understand that too. But this was a truly specific point in which he made a very clear decision when he could have chosen the other way. And it was a neither decision was at any risk to him personally. Regardless, people still watch, myself included, not even hoping that he would get his comeuppance, but wondering how Walt will get out of this next hell of his own creation that he uses to corrupt and hurt all those around him. How far will he continue to let his pride lead him? And remember, it's it's not just um, him that's suffering from this. He corrupts Jesse even further. He corrupts his wife, brings her in on it, corrupts her even further. Everybody he touches becomes more enmeshed into this world. And it's not just Walt that other people loved. Everybody loved Gus as well. Uh, Gus was the mm-hmm. owner of the uh, the Pollo, uh, Los Hermanos Pollos. Los, Pollos Los, Hermanos. Uh, yeah. Chicken Brothers. Chicken Brothers. Yeah. yeah. Um, Gus was an eminently evil individual. Yep. Saul was sleazy, so much so that now he's got his own show. Mm-hmm. Mike was ruthless. Old man Mike. Yeah. He was ruthless as hell. And yet every one of them was someone that the audience was absolutely drawn to. Now, Mike is the one who actually uh uses the title phrase, right? That was when I broke bad. No, uh breaking bad happens in the first episode where uh Walt gets the money for the uh the the RV, because that was the original okay. plan. And Jesse asks, you know, like, what what caused you to break bad? Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, Breaking Bad has its own interesting linguistic components in the South. Yeah. It can mean any number of things. It can mean going ape shit. It could also mean just using bad language, or okay. uh, it could mean um, manipulating people. Like, it, it has a lot of derivations to it. Okay. And so it felt a bit like an empty vessel of, of a title, to be honest. Okay. Now, every season saw incredible growth. Uh, the first episode had 1.41 million viewers the final season the final episode or no i'm sorry the first episode of the final season had 10.28 million uh, viewers holy cow yeah that's almost tenfold increase from january 2008 i must say that again from january 2008 until september 2013 we wow. fo- yeah, we follow a white, barely holding on to the middle class, middle aged, failed by the system he bought into man who's trying like hell to keep his pride in a system that's clearly grinding him down to nothing. And all of this lines up almost to the day with Obama's candidacy and presidency. In January of 2008, he surprisingly beat out John Edwards and Hillary Clinton as mm-hmm. the candidate in Iowa, stating our time for change has come while running against an establishment Democrat and Hillary Clinton and John Mm -hmm. Edwards, who had been constructing the careful campaign talking specifically about the two Americas, which was a quote that he borrowed from or a phrase that he borrowed from Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I didn't see anywhere where he attributed it to him. Doesn't mean he didn't, but he probably Mm -hmm. only did it once or twice. Yeah. Because in 1967, here's what Martin Luther King said. He said, there are literally two Americas. One America is beautiful. And in a sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity and the honey of our of opportunity. This America is the habitat of millions of people who have food and material necessities for their bodies and culture and education for their minds and freedom and human dignity for their spirits. In this America, 
Millions of people experience every day the opportunity of having life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in all of their dimensions. And in this America, millions of young people grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But tragically and unfortunately, there is another America. This other America has daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the uh, ebulency, ebulency, ebullience, ebullience. Uh, but he says ebulency, okay. ebulliency of hope into the fatigue of despair. In this America, millions of work-starved men walk the streets daily in search of for jobs that do not exist. In this America, millions of people find themselves living in rat-infested, vermin-filled slums. In this America, people are poor by the millions. They find themselves perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. Now take that imagery and look at Tony Soprano. Look at Al Swearingen. Look at Nancy Botkin. Look at... Um, yeah, I'm not going to say look at Don Draper because we only focused on that uh, that that prosperity. But mm -hmm. look at uh, Walt Walter White. White. Yeah, all of them are absolutely showing us the two Americas existing very often in the two different parts of their lives that they're playing in. Yeah. So <laughs> Edwards gave a speech at the two. That was, by the way, Martin Luther King in 1967. Yep. I'm just glad we fixed everything by then. Yeah, um, no, isn't it wonderful that yeah. we're now living in the utopia that, yeah. you know, I mean, everybody when... listened to him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was good. Yeah. He never, um, he was never vilified by anybody. Not in the slightest. You know, yeah. Now, in 2004, at the Democratic National Convention, John Edwards, who was candidate for vice, princ or vi vice principal, Jesus vice principal, <laughs> you know well, what? Looking, was, looking at Edwards, I can yeah. totally see him doing that job. Well, and and his main principal was Vice. So, yeah. oh, ooh. Ooh. oh okay. uh, Edwards, did I ever tell you about uh, there's a principal that we had at our school? Um, I will not name her, but uh, the kids called her Skeletor. Um, but <laughs> but um, when when she left, uh, the paper ran uh, a, a story, a front page story. Our school paper ran a front page story. Uh, mm -hmm. Principal uh, heading off to whatever cool new thing she was doing. You know, congratulations uh -huh. to our principal. But they spelled yeah. it P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E. To which one of the English teachers says, well, that's the first time that word's been attached to her. Oh, <laughs> shit. Yeah wow that's good times all yeah. right <laughs> damn but anyway so in 2004 he is he is candidate for vice president under john yes. Kerry, um yeah. and or on the same ticket as john Kerry, uh yeah. which i i'm still gobsmacked that that they lost but at, but they did lose actually yeah. it's, it's the only yeah. one in the last eight elections where the democrats actually lost by way vote. yeah by way of popular vote yeah um it's good things, good systems, good times. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So he's at the DNC, wherein he says, quote, we can build one America where we no longer have two healthcare systems, one for families who get the best healthcare money can buy, and then one for everyone else rationed out by insurance companies, drug companies, and HMOs. Millions of Americans have no health coverage at all. It doesn't have to be that way. And then four years later, we start, a t or three years later, we start a TV show that is a teacher in New Mexico. Yep. Who's definitely in that second column. Uh, yeah. So, 
Now, Edwards said uh, in, in basically right after the election failed, he, he all but moved to Iowa and spent the next three years trying really hard to get people to, to be down for what he was doing. Yeah. And uh, so he ran for president in the 2008 election uh, for the primary. His campaign failed against the hope and change that Obama offered, and he yeah. dropped from the running in late January 2008. So you, you, uh, you have Edwards, um, his, he's the only white male in the, in the running now. And it's, uh, late 2008 or it's, it's early 2008, but it's right around the time that they, that they get started on the show. So, uh, in June of 2008, okay. His personal life imploded taking all his credibility and attractiveness to middle America with it, owing to an affair. Back when, you know, revelations like that could actually derail somebody's political career. I've only seen them derail Democrats. Gary Hart was a Democrat. Yeah. John Edwards Just, was a Democrat. Yeah. It's, you know, they, they actually will, they'll, they'll stop punching when the bell rings. Yeah. <laughs> so this is true. Yeah. Now, Obama and Clinton took center stage, meaning that there was a mathematical certainty that in the presidential election in the fall of 2008, it would not be between two white men for the first time. This is true. As we know, Obama won handedly, and for the rest of the show's run, Obama was president. Also for the duration of the run, there was the normalizing of a never-ending war, as well as the crash and recovery from the housing market collapse. And while that was happening, folks were facing foreclosures at rates not seen in a long goddamn time. Here's some numbers for you. In 2008, there were 2.33 million foreclosures. Okay. In 2009, that number went up to 2.82 million, which I, you're still within the 2 million mark, but it's that's another 500,000 people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another half a million folks. Yeah. yeah. In 2010, 2.87 million. So it's still going up by another 50,000. Um. It's cresting, though, because in 2011, it went down to 1.88 million. Uh, in 2012, it went down to 1.83 million. So it's going slow. Okay. Yeah. And then 2013, it went down to 1.36 million. Now, okay. to give you an idea, in 2007 or 2006, it was at only half a million. Oh, wow. So even 2013 numbers is almost triple what it had been prior to the collapse yeah but like i said uh yeah this is still literally i i said the thing that i actually just written uh it was triple what they it was nearly triple what they'd been in 2005 mm -hmm. and now a black guy was in charge right and that's a problem for a large swath of the of the country for entirely too many people yeah. And less cosmetically, there was also a lot of money that was being pumped into banks and businesses and not as much at hitting uh, as uh, as helping people in their pocketbooks. OK, yeah. So it's true. Yeah. I mean, you, you again, remember AIG with all the bonuses that they paid out. Yeah. Now, right. you've got all that going on. Yeah. And before we dive back in and take a look at the heroes who got spurned, because I haven't forgotten Pope Francis and John Cena. Um, we need to talk about another hero 
who was brought low by his pride. You want to take a guess? Brought low by his pride. We're talking, this is specifically in the mid to late 2000s. Yep. 2000s and early teens. Tony Stark? No. No. Oh, I like that though. This is a real person. Oh, oh, oh. A real hero. Real hero. Brought low by his pride. Right now I'm blanking, but I know when you say it, I'm going to kick myself because it was fucking obvious. So in 1992, Lance Armstrong stepped onto the world stage of professional oh, cycling. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was with the Motorola team in 1992. Now from 93 to 96, he won world championships and two other big time tours. Um, and then he made good showings in the Tour de France, especially in 1995. Yeah. Okay. He seemed poised to be the next big thing until testicular cancer came along. At the age of 25, Lance Armstrong was diagnosed with stage three testicular cancer. And by this point, it had spread to multiple systems. And he had an almost nil chance of survival to the point where the doctors lied to him because if he learned the odds, then he wouldn't have fought. Oh, wow. Okay. The doctors removed the offending testicle and he ended up getting the best treatment possible. Again, to America's. Mm-hmm. Um, and later he had brain surgery to remove the necrotic lesions on his brain. Now that was in 1996 that all of that started happening. The initial yeah. diagnosis I want to say was in October of 96, maybe September of 96. That sounds about right from what I recall. Yeah. In February of 97, only four months after his initial diagnosis, he was declared cancer free and joined his, uh, team for tra- training camp. Yep. So hell of a turnaround from you're, you're gone, dude. You're, uh, you're a dead man walking. Yeah. Cycling. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly he's at a training camp. Now, after a bit of negotiating, they didn't renew his contract. And in 1998, Lance Armstrong joined the U S postal team in January of 98. Yep. He came Went back postal. to United. Yep. <laughs> he came back to, and they, that's, I, I think the going postal thing is why they, they sponsored the the cycling team because hey we sense. want you to see speed we want you to see athletes we want you to see well-adjusted people um yeah so he comes back to the united states to train for the next tour de france in may of 1998 he trains in the appalachian mountains with former tour de france teammates um he begins holding charity races which drew luminaries past and present from the cycling world he's doing all the right things he has he started to live board. strong not for a while Oh, okay. Not that's for a fair. while, right. but he's doing all these things and they're all the right things. I mean, talk about just the PR machine that this is. It is really, really smart. Um, and he's, he's very American. Like, I mean, he's from Texas, but he's not a good old boy from Texas. You know, he's kind of more of a Houston guy, mm-hmm. but he's training in the Appalachians. Like he's, he's doing all the American things in, in the late 1990s. Now at this point, he is a, per, he's a pursuit persevering hero mm-hmm. um he's an american icon on some levels and he is heading into being a world icon he enters and wins several uh other tours in the next year and in 1999 lance armstrong who has the world's average amount of testicles okay yes this is true the average person has one uh and who beat a pretty deadly case of cancer he won the tour de france in 1999 And while he did win, 
The main powerhouse in the cycling world at the time, Jan Ulrich, was not in that race due to an injury. So, of course, it was he won, but could he have? Questions remain. Questions that would be answered in 2000 when Armstrong won again and Jan was there. He won again in 2001 and in 2002 he won again. But this time Ulrich wasn't there due to a suspension for drugs. Yeah. Now, at this point, like, you know, that's that's a big deal. And it's like, oh, but he's an American and, and he's been doing it drug free. He wins again in 2003. But this time Ulrich came pretty close in 2004. Armstrong wins again. And despite losing a stage to another American in 2005, he wins again. So that's seven year winning streak yep. for the Tour de France, the, the most uh, challenging, grueling. It's it's the World Series of Cycling. Yeah. And he retired as the most dominant bike rider ever. And he was an American with an awesome fucking name. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, no, you, and can't, his, you can't beat that. Yeah. Yeah. And his bracelets were everywhere at this point. Yellow live strong bracelets were everywhere from 2003 forward. Okay. That's, that's right. really what we got going. All right. Yeah. And some of it had to do with his relationship with Cheryl Crow. She also had yeah. cancer. Um, yeah. But, you know, he, he was also, I mean, the dude was a major spokesperson for like, hey, you can fucking beat cancer. And he absolutely went and cheered up a bunch of kids and a bunch of people. Oh, yeah. Um, no, he was, an, he was an avatar of, yes. of joyful defiance. Yeah, that's a really in, good way to put it. In the face of that disease, yeah. Now, having said that, he maybe lived that gimmick a little bit much <laughs> like or <laughs> or he was an asshole and this time he was pointed in the right direction yeah so in the fall of 2008 he declared that he was coming back and wanted to participate in the tour de france for 2009 um and i think he was successful because he got third place and his own teammate won yeah i also think that this is very much uh americans are like if you ain't first you're last kind of bullshit yeah. Uh, but uh, Japanese wrestlers would be like, oh, he did a good job. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In 2009, he declared that he'd race again in 2010, announcing it this time on Twitter. Uh, and by the way, at this point, I think the Pope had his own Twitter as well. Um, yeah. Uh, I think it's at Pontifex. Um, I, yeah, I believe yeah. so. Uh, this time he finished in 23rd place. And this time he would quit for good. And to me, I think that's a wonderful story. He came back and he left on his own terms. He's no longer able to hold the top spot. Yep. And he goes out having given it his all and, and failing. And I think that's a wonderful arc. Um, it's a great narrative. He yeah. beat cancer. He became the number one for an unprecedented seven years in a row, went away, came back to prove that he could still fucking go. And then he finally quits. And that would be a great story, except that this podcast never lets never, the story never end. Never ends on that kind no. of note. No. Throughout most of his career, Lance Armstrong had been accused of doping. And in cycling, doping is a pretty common problem. As far back as 1999, though, Armstrong was accused publicly of doping because of how well and effortlessly he had gone up the Alps during a stage in the Tour de France. He's accused by European newspapers. And of course... He's at the beginning of his comeback from cancer and he vehemently denied doping and, you know, and, and the American press loved having him as a hero. So there's a lot more support in the U.S. than there was suspicion. And the mm -hmm. coverage in the U.S. was not so much the controversy or the facts, but moreover, the way that the European press was dogging him. Mm -hmm. 
coverage of the coverage right yeah, how 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 suspicious and unfair and envious they all are exactly of the fact that you know this this you know they're they're all just offended that this you know uh upstart, colonial, american. upstart yeah. american you know is is showing up all of their you know elite euro athletes exactly you know yeah so and and his rejoinders to the claims of his doping were always pretty commonsensically dismissive he would say quote why would I dope if I just beat cancer? Why would I dope if I live in France, which is super anti-doping? That's a Damien phrasing, but yeah. um, that kind of stuff. And I mean, right on its surface, you're like, yeah, dude did just beat cancer. Why would he dope? I mean, that would yeah. threaten his life. Um, except, you know, I don't understand medicine and, you know, others <laughs> would. And they'd be like, oh, yeah. yeah, it's no fucking problem. Um, and why would I dope if I live in France? It's the most regulated place in the world. Yeah, but you could also bribe those regulators. Um, so <laughs> you could hire Italians to do it for you. Like, <laughs> that's what he did. Uh, then he starts publicly throwing people under the bus when he did get proven to be doping or at least related to doping. That begins with Michelle Ferrari, uh, the Italian doctor who was busted for connections to doping. Um, and he was one of the first people that that uh, Armstrong jettisoned. Uh, Armstrong said uh, that he possessed, quote, zero tolerance for anyone convicted of using or facilitating the use of performance enhancing drugs. OK, now, looking back, you're like, thou dost protest too much. But at the time, mm -hmm. dude is consistent, sticking to his story. No matter how many people are throwing shit at him, he's got a repost. Mm hmm. He was so clean that he wanted no relationship with such people. And so he severed professional ties with Ferrari. He did still hang out with the dude from time to time, but you know, friends. Yeah. Um, he sued the Sunday times in 2004 for libel and they had to make a public apology after settling out of court with him. Other people continued the claim uh, to claim aloud that he was doping. And this included two other journalists and his own personal assistant who was already in a legal fight over wrongful termination. See, if you're going to oh, wow. dope, take care of the people that work for you. Yeah, don't be a dick. But Armstrong did uh, the most clever thing you could do. When somebody accuses you of doing the thing that you're doing, what do you do? You countersue. So he countersued his for former personal assistant, and the two reached a settlement out of court, which remains undisclosed. Um, Armstrong continued to call this a witch hunt sound familiar mm -hmm. um and he accused the press of tabloid journalism so he's attacking the press uh he kept things going right. despite a secret <laughs> despite a secret meeting in colorado where he'd accepted uh a one-year ban um he had a, a i think it was like in the office of the former governor of colorado and he met with a bunch of people and they're like look just take the one-year ban and he's like well i didn't and that that deal fell apart um, mm. in, in August of 2005, he said, quote, I will simply restate what I have said many times. I have never taken performance enhancing drugs. And then he went on to accuse the lab of spiking his urine samples. Wait, uh -huh. I had forgotten that. Yeah. He accused the laboratory. Yes. Of spiking his, his urine, urine samples. samples. Yeah. They're all out because to because that's a thing that happens for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a double blind delivery system too. Like you yeah. piss into a cup, it's got a number on it. Yeah. You know, that yeah. doesn't have your fucking name on it. Yeah. Um, and then they just report on the number. They never actually know whose name it's attached to. 
So, so far, so good, right? The hero has won seven straight tours and he is squeaky clean. Who doesn't love a good story of a Texan boy done good in France? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then Frankie and Betsy Andrew reported in a deposition in a lawsuit case over a backer, specifically SCA Promotions, who were refusing a $5 million bonus for Armstrong winning his sixth Tour de France. So it's, it's part of how he gets paid. Um, yeah. And this this company, um, SCA Promotions, they said, oh, yeah, you win and you get a $5 million bonus for your whole team. And they didn't want to pay that. And so there was an, a lawsuit. And they said, well, fucker cheated the whole way. We don't have to pay shit. And and it's like, well, how do you know he cheated? Well, Frankie and Betsy, why don't you two uh, get deposed? And so they got deposed and they're like, yeah, dude, dude was doping like crazy. Um, well, of course, they settled. Uh, they ended up paying one and a half times that amount to cover the interest and lawyer fees um, to Lance Armstrong. Uh, so instead of five million, they got he got seven point five million um, because his case was so he was so squeaky clean that, uh, you know, he clearly wow. wasn't doping. Um, but wow. In that deposition, Betsy Andrews stated that Armstrong had used growth hormone, testosterone, steroids, and a lot of other stuff I don't understand. Okay. Yeah. Armstrong started on a, on a charm offensive, um, claiming that Betsy must have been confused at what his post-operation treatments included. Again, I don't know medicine. That makes sense. I was taking okay. these medicines because of my post-chemo shit. And yes, they do sound like steroids, but actually they're approved and these aren't. And I'm going to the ninja powder run. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Smoke bomb. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which were EPO and steroids to, to help with the problems that aggressive chemotherapy brings to the table. Um, but there was also a text stream between Frankie and another uh, mainly about blood doping. Uh, however, that other man, Jonathan Vauders, Voiders, Vauders, um, no, no. It's daughters with a V. Uh, I'm going to say Vauders yeah. signed an affidavit that nobody knew anything about uh, that, n- that, that nobody knew anything about Lance doping. So he signed an affidavit said, ain't nobody know nothing about no, no doping. Nothing. I got nothing. Okay. So this means that nobody backs Betsy and Frankie's claims and the case just kind of fizzled away. So he beat it again. Uh, and he talked mad shit on the two of them, too, especially Betsy. Um, uh-huh. SCA promotions were hopeful that the allegations of doping would get them out of paying the bonus. They didn't. And again, Armstrong comes away as the hero. Because after all, this is what year did I say? This is 2007. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, 2005. And then, yeah, the so we're heading. Yeah. Mid mid 2000s. Uh, I forgot okay. the actual date on it. Uh, but really, if you look at the story, an insurance company is trying to short an American hero and accuse him of something that he's clearly never done. And there's a confused wife of a former teammate. Poor Lance. Yeah. And since people are already primed to not really like insurance companies, whether or not they're sponsoring a, a, a cycling team or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in May of 2010, Floyd Landis the guy who had won the Tour de France after Lance Armstrong retired in 2006, he popped a positive. And when you pop a positive, one of the things you do traditionally is you throw other people under the goddamn bus. 
so well, yeah, no, you start singing <laughs> like a canary. <laughs> so he said that Lance had actually done the same thing in 2002 and 2003. And Landis claimed without documentation that the team manager slash director bribed the presidency of the Union Cycliste Internationale to keep the 2002 test results quiet. Landis also claimed that Armstrong was getting lots and lots of blood transfusions to inject and to inject oxygenated blood back into his body and giving out testosterone patches to his teammates. So I want to talk about the blood thing first. Okay. Um, when you're high altitude, your blood is thinner, right? Right. Yeah, I forget no. exactly why, but I think there's less iron in it. Therefore, there's less recovery that can happen with thinned blood. Yeah. So what they would do is they would draw their own blood or somebody would draw their blood for them when they were at really low altitude and at rest. And like, so it's got the maximum iron, in it, right? They would mm -hmm. draw that, they would keep that. And then that night after they finished riding, they'd get re-injected with that good blood. Yeah. Okay. And that would aid in recovery. Yeah. And on some levels, like, well, are you going to get me for putting my own blood back in my body? Like, but the answer is yes. Yeah, uh, the, that's, the answer is it's supposed to be, you know, the point is supposed to be, <laughs> you know, facing the challenge of the high altitude and dealing right. with, you know, yeah. And, and so um, just as a, as a side note, because mm -hmm. um, Cheryl Crow got mentioned a minute ago uh -huh. uh, and, and that whole thing. So he got the, he split up with Cheryl Crow. Yes, they split up in 06. Yes. And I oh I the live strong stuff was before that then. Yeah. 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 Um, and I I remember like that split being for me the moment where some of these things started kind of hitting home. Like, like mm. there, there was a part of me that was like, you know, maybe there's a crack in the facade here. You know, okay. and I don't know, I don't know. I don't know how much of, because I didn't want to believe it. None of us wanted to believe it, you know, mm -hmm. but yeah, huh. I was just trying to remember when, when it was in my own head that I'd started thinking like, you know, maybe he's kind of a dick. Huh. And I think that was, that was part of it. That, okay. that wasn't the moment where I, where I fully said, no, you stole the droids. Fuck you. <laughs> But but it was like, well, you know, did you get the droids legally? Kind of, interesting. Kind of thing. Anyway, interesting. Sorry. No, it's fine. I just find it interesting what what pulls people into like, okay, I'll look at the facts. And for you, it was his romantic relationship with a singer who's got more money than either of us ever will make <laughs> ever will like yeah. ever forever. You know, I, I think I think in my in my head, part of it was they had been so visible yeah that's true and and it had seemed like you know such a fairy tale kind of kind of story mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden like it fell apart okay and there was a part of me that was like well and i'm also hearing all this other stuff where people are making these accusations like do you think do you think there's is... something there because i i i i never gave a shit like it was like yeah, oh okay oh okay um, but I also didn't give a shit about the recent Johnny Depp, Amber Heard stuff. And a yeah. lot of people did. And I'm wondering if there's just like, there's something about that two visible people splitting will make people start to look askance at them. 
I think there's, there's, I think it's related to the instinct that we have mm-hmm. of rubbernecking. Okay. Yeah. You know, because, because back when we were, you know, upright apes on the savannah of Africa and mm-hmm. we had to worry about leopards. Sure. When you see someone some go down, predator, sure, take something down. Yeah. It's going to capture and hold your attention because you could be like, okay, how did they fuck up? Right, right. Like, I got to make sure whatever the fuck that is, I don't need to do that. I didn't do that. Right. And that's yeah. a that's a really normal thing for humans to do is, is yeah. well, okay, I wouldn't have done that, so I'll be safe. Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm all right. I'm all right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You know. So, so yeah, there's the blood doping stuff um, that he gets accused of by, uh, who did I say? Floyd Landis. Um, and, uh, then also there's handing out testosterone patches to his teammates. Now I, that's, That's, if you're, if you're at the top of the pyramid scheme, you keep your hands clean. I'm a little shocked that if, if, if what Floyd Landis is saying is true, I'm a little shocked that Lance Armstrong was like that taken in by his own hubris to hand out the shit because now he's literally distributing. Oh yeah. This this is how Vince McMahon beat the steroid scandal of the 1990s <laughs> because there was a doctor who handed uh, yeah. shit out. Yeah. Dr. And, Z. And that, um, and that creates a a level of plausible deniability. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I was at the other side of the arena. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I'm like <laughs> that doctor showed up to every show you had. <laughs> They're independent contractors. What do you want? Yeah, yeah, what do you want from me? <laughs> so I'm, but I'm yeah, just a so businessman. And, and so I think that accusation also starts to make the, the whole thing look desperate. Everybody keeps claiming that Armstrong is doping, but nobody's able to prove anything or do more than simply gossip. So the result is that Floyd Landis just looks like a bitter ex-teammate. Yeah. Um, even the Union Cycliste Internationale, I know I'm blowing that, uh, he denied that Armstrong had, they denied that Armstrong had any presence of EPO in his blood in 2001. And what I love here is, I'm just going to break away for a second. I watched the documentary on Lance Armstrong, the 3430 documentary, and okay. it's, it yeah, is yeah. a thing to watch. Um, well, all the 3430s are amazing. They are, it's, but like, yeah. this is a study in charming narcissism. Like he, he is just yeah. so fucking likable and he's honest about his shit, but only to a point. Okay. And it just, and, but they asked, they're like, you know, is there any, any regrets or anything that you, you walked away knowing that you're, you're doing good? He says, yeah, I wake up every day grateful as hell that I'm not a fucking asshole like Floyd Landis. He says something like that. And you're like, Jesus, dude, holy shit. You're still holding that. That's that's the point at which he he blinks and like if you if you go frame by frame you can see the reptile eyes for like <laughs> right. two frames like right but like he just basically crap. is like I'm just grateful I'm not an asshole like Floyd Landis like I, I forget exactly what he said like I'm not a fuck up like Floyd Landis or something really awful wow but like you know it, hey Damien your team just won uh, what are you gonna do well I'm gonna go fuck Floyd Landis's mom <laughs> and give her a son that she could be proud of like. Could you have just like backed Campbell's chunky soup? Like said you're going to Disneyland. Right. Like, <laughs> like there are so many cliches you could have gone with, and you and you instead decided to erect a guillotine. Right. To attack a guy who did to not attack- have the power to bring you down and who, yeah. who does not have that power now, and you're still going after him. Yeah, they're there. He must have hit a nerve. Mm. 
He was like, probably right is really what it is. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, malignant narcissists do not like having a mirror held up to them, ironically oh, enough. No. Oh, fuck so, no. Tyler Hamilton came out, uh, not the son of Scott Hamilton, okay. uh, but Tyler, I don't think. Actually, I should probably look that up. But anyway. Tyler Hamilton came out in 2011 with another claim. He said that in 1999 through 2001, Armstrong had taken EPO before and during the Tour de France. Now, the thing is, I never looked up what EPO means. I assume it's exercise placement organisms, um, but I'm probably wrong. Nice. Uh, but it, it's it's Good. the same kind of shit that they were smearing into Barry Bonds's butt. Um, so, uh, of course, other people. <laughs> I'm sorry. You, are you okay? <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, erythroprotein stimulating agents. I was uh, close. EPO. Yeah. Yeah, er- erythroprotein uh, yeah. produced by the kidney used to make red blood cells. So it's more See? blood doping. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, he said that 99 to 2001, he says this 10 years later. He's like, oh, fuck, yeah, he did that shit all the time before and during the Tour de France. And, of course, other people are like, dude's lying. Tyler Hamilton, come on, sit down. But now that's (laughs) Floyd Landis, Tyler Hamilton, Frankie Andrew, and his wife, Betsy, all saying the same story. So clearly they're in cahoots, right? Because nothing came of it, despite all these claims. There wasn't any evidence with which anyone could corroborate these claims. We still wanted to, collectively, we still yes. wanted to believe. Yeah, it's that, well, was he convicted? No. Well, yeah. Okay, that's just because the judge fucked up. Like, Okay, look, you know, I, have, I, have, I have a pile of evidence. Well, it's all circumstantial. Yeah, but it's powerful enough to defeat reasonable doubt. Yeah. Well, I still don't believe it. Well, okay, your doubt is unreasonable. Right. Like, so no. <laughs> by 2012, though, the federal government, who had been investigating these claims, dropped all charges. Couldn't find it. Really? Yeah. So okay. as it turns out, there was one good man in cycling, and he was an American hero. Finally, someone against type in the 2010s. Uh, yeah, no. 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 Yeah, I guess I guess uh, in October of 2012, the USADA, yeah. the United States Anti-Doping Agency, also yeah. USADA, mm-hmm. dropped a bombshell that, in fact, there was a tremendous network that enabled Lance Armstrong and many others to dope for years. Yep. Quote, the evidence shows beyond any doubt that the U.S. Postal Service pro cycling team ran the most sophisticated, professionalized and successful doping program that sport has ever seen. The evidence oh, was the evidence was overwhelming, <laughs> included the receipts, the emails, the inventories, the lab results, etc. Now remember who was sponsoring him. The postal service. Which is federal. Federal. Yeah. Which means it's taxpayer money that's going toward this. Oh shit. That oh, had never yeah. occurred to me. Yeah. Which explains why the federal government dropped all the charges. <laughs> Oh, in 2013, he went on Yay. he went on Oprah and admitted that he had been using performance-enhancing drugs, blood doping, EPO, diuretics, falsified documents, and he said that it had helped all seven of his tour victories. He also admitted a few years later that he had been doping since back in the spring of 1995. Wow. Yeah. He said, wow. quote, he, he said that he would, quote, will spend the rest of my life trying to win back the trust and apologizing to people. And then came the strippings. 
the justice, the repudiations, the public ate it the fuck up. He was stripped of all of his race wins. One of my favorite ones, though, is like they he's no longer the 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 champion of the Tour de France. Well, this the number two guy also doped. All right. The number three guy also doped. All right. It, you got down to like guy number yeah. 17. N- number. Yeah. Way, was, way down the list. It was like, <laughs> which was all awesome. right. Yeah. Which is all the more reason kids follow your dreams. Be number 18 out of 18. Because the odds are, if you do it clean, you'll end up in the record books. Yeah. So, Jesus. He was banned from cycling for life from the IOC, as well as many other organizations. He was dumped by all of his sponsors. Many publicly said that they were looking to get their money back from him because he had defrauded them. SCA Promotions was quick quick to jump back in there. Yeah, no Uh, kidding. His hero turned villain persona was exposed for all to see, often with his own admissions. Quote, yes, I was a bully. I tried to control the narrative. And if I didn't like what someone said, I turned on them. And this included the massage therapist, Emma O'Reilly, who tried to expose him in 2003. He, quote, we ran over her, end quote. I, I don't think he actually did like Johnny and everybody was about to do to Danielson. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think he meant more metaphorically. Yeah. Um, he ended up set, settling with the U.S. federal government uh, over the $100 million sponsorship that had been b- built on this fraud. He settled for 5%. I've, I've never owed back taxes. I have. Did, did you settle for 5%? No. No? Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Yeah. Fucking Lance Armstrong. Fucking. Oh, God. Please. 5%. See, 5%. that that bit is new to me. Yep. That And you know what? Mm. You know what? I just got angry about the whole thing all over again. <laughs> I've listened. I've listened to this whole story with, with total equanimity and, and utter historical detachment of yeah. like, let's look at this phenomenon. And now I am seething. <laughs> 5%. Yeah. The federal government paid him a hundred million dollars to mm-hmm. ride a goddamn bicycle. Yes. To go to France mm-hmm. and ride a bike. Yes. He cheated. He did. Massively. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Before, during, and after. Eventually, by his own admission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he had to pay back. 5%. 5%. Mm-hmm. No. Nope. No. That is not acceptable. I want you're, jail you're time gonna... for Lance Armstrong. You, you okay? Like, I, no, I, I want. I, just... I want maybe not. Maybe not. Like you know, maximum security, but mm-hmm. like no club fed something. I I need. So Ugh. he gets interviewed for the thirty by thirty, and yeah. he lives in this beautiful villa. Still, yeah, I know. And and he bargained down to five percent. So. So name name for me how this whole thing, the rise and fall of Lance, doesn't fit in with 2013. Just oh yeah, I I I can't. You have a hero brought low, proven to not be spotless, but incredibly wicked. Oh, feet of clay. Yeah, 
Total any good person who does exist only does so in their appearance. And even that is worthy of scorn. Everyone else is clearly wicked. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. He's fucking Homelander. Oh, see, I haven't seen that show yet. Um, I, I haven't seen the show, but I read the read the comic. Okay. Um, yeah, no. Uh, you think he's Superman, and he's actually literally a goddamn sociopath with the powers of Superman. And yeah. Um, yeah, no, Lance Lance Armstrong is wow. Yeah. Wow. Yep. I'm I mentioned that I'm furious, right? Like you did. that already came. Yeah, okay. Yes. And that's okay. actually we're gonna I end am. this episode. <laughs> so I just get to sit here and stew yeah, for a whole week. <laughs> oh great. So that's yeah, wonderful. That's gonna be so great for my wife and kid. That's I do want to know what you've gleaned so far, though. So <laughs> you can express some of it. Well, okay. there's gonna be a whole nother episode to to wrap all this up, but also well, you know, to bring I, I back think... very important parts. I think it's I think it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know, taking a moment to take a deep breath and regain my <laughs> historical detachment, um, I, I find it really interesting that in the in the eighties and into the nineties, we were you know very earnestly as a as a dominant culture, you know, pop culture mm-hmm. was very earnestly heroic. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, we talk about the Bronze Age in comics and we talk about, you know, stuff that happened in the 90s in comics and anti-heroes became a thing. But they were still anti-heroes. Right. Stone Cold Steve Austin was still Stone Cold Steve Austin. He was Was, still cheered for this. Yeah. Yeah. And then over time, we see this, this, this popular corrosion of our idealism. Mm hmm. And Lance Armstrong just happened to be the perfect, like his, his arc happened at the it's perfect time, right? <laughs> at, the, at absolutely the perfect time historically for him yep. to be literally the fucking avatar. Yes. Of that. Mm-hmm. And, and as, and, and, and the part of me that, that is able to watch in reptilian glee as you know don draper does all of his utterly amoral shit you mean all the shit that lance armstrong was doing in real life yeah is is Mm -hmm. is is now kind of waking up again and i'm like oh shit lance armstrong did the same fucking thing yeah oh my god how (laughs) How? like like yeah and now and now we want to see the 3430 um episode yeah just because like no 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 i want details like tell me how the fuck this happened so yeah um i i think i think the serendipity is the word that comes to mind but the mm-hmm. the, the conflict the resonance i don't know what the word is i'm looking for of of see to me i don't think of it as serendipity i think of it as all i mean you know, I'm building a case here, right? About how well, all yeah. of this happened at a specific point in time. None of it happened independently of the other. They, these were not coincidences yeah. so much as this is what we were all doing. Okay. You know, and like, you know, it's kind of like my analysis of music in the 1960s versus the 1970s. The 60s were about, hey, you want to end the war, you better sing loud. And then in the 1970s, it was, 
you know, let's just fucking sit in our mom's basement and do barbiturates like in a God of Vita, <laughs> baby, you know, but like you had the same length of time of a song. Yeah, this one was 20 minutes and it was just, a, you know, a guy playing the scales on the organ, uh, the, the drum solo and all that. But in the 60s, you had Alice's Restaurant, which was you know, seven and a half pages of lyrics and actually yeah. was about ending the fucking war. Yeah. And I don't think that that's coincidental in any way when you measure it with what was going on politically. Like people yeah. had optimism in the 60s that was just crushed underfoot by the failures of 1968 and the assassinations of 1968. Yeah. So going into the 70s, nobody has any optimism at all. It's it's all yeah. very cynical, um, you know, and I, and I think that okay. that absolutely, you know, that's influenced the art that influenced the drug culture that certainly you know, influence yeah. politics. I mean, Nixon is winning in a fucking landslide in 72, you know, yeah, and then and then you have shit that's all about image and image management in the 80s going into the 90s. And you got Reagan and Clinton. Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah. those guys are that just sense. about, you know, it, it's so. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't think it's coincidental or serendipitous at all. I think that okay. you don't have all these things happening except at this time. All right. That's fair. So. Cool. Well, uh, what you reading? Um, right now I am on an Asimov kick. Mm-hmm. Um, I read uh, the Caves of Steel, and I have moved mm-hmm. on reread Caves of Steel, and I've moved on to the Robots of Dawn. Okay. Um, and so uh, that's not what I'm going to recommend, though. Okay. Um, instead, I'm going to recommend Foundation, also by Asimov. Okay. Um, because of its its importance within the genre, and um, it's actually it, it has this reputation for being this you know big important book, capital mm-hmm. B, capital I, capital B, but it actually reads really easily. Nice. Um, so I, I I highly recommend that for everybody who's looking for something to pick up. How about you? I'm going to recommend two things. Number one, I'm going to recommend that you watch 30 for 30. It's a two-part episode. It's just called Lance. There's part one and part two. Uh, It's from season three. It's episodes 37 and 38, I think. Um, So you can find that probably on ESPN Plus. uh, And and just get creative with how you find shit. Um, So I I really recommend you watch that documentary. Um, And then I also think that you should read um, Cycle of Lies, The Fall of Lance Armstrong by Julie McCour. I think she does a really good job there. There's another one called Wheelmen, which is pretty good um, by Reed Albergati. Um, but I really do think that Julie, uh, what's her face, uh, Julie McCour, um, I think, I don't know. I think there's a little bit more polish, a little bit more on the ball for that one. Okay. It's a little more accessible. So, um, and that you could find that wherever good books are sold and you probably find it in the local library. All um, right. So those are the things I'm going to recommend. So, all right. Uh, where can people find you on the social medias? I can be found on social media uh, at uh, Mr. Underscore Blaylock on TikTok. I can be found at EH Blaylock on Twitter. And we collectively can be found on the Twitter machine at Geek History Time. And where can you be found, sir? Uh, you can find me at Duh Harmony on Twitter and Instagram or Duh Harmony One on TikTok. Uh, you could find me, let's see, by the time this airs, uh, August 5th, I want to say. It's the first Friday of August. Um, we will be doing a, uh, a new show for Capital Punishment at Luna's up here in Sacramento. 
Make sure that you're vaccinated. Make sure you bring $10 for the show as well as another $10 to buy food there because it's yummy. Uh, and you'll hear me doing all kinds of puns uh, that you probably won't hear right now because I'm the one doing the <laughs> exposition. Mm. So, uh, but yeah, those those two. And if for some reason this airs after August, uh, then actually you could take a look at us on September 9th at Luna's. Uh, we're not doing September 2nd because Labor Day weekend, we try to keep the Sabbath holy. So as you should as you should so uh all right well for a geek history of time i'm damien harmony i'm ed blaylock and until next time keep rolling 20s